On this episode of Kim's Chief Feeding Life Energy, I have my mother, my heir, and I'm so glad that you are here, Mom. Thanks for being here. You're welcome. I'm so glad to be here. <laughs> you are from Chicago, Illinois. Oh, yeah. Chicago, the Windy City. Yes, I was born there. One brother and two sisters. So there were four of us. We were born into a, I was born into a, sad home, but we also had a lot of fun. So it's hard to say it was a sad home. But when my mother cried because of um, two children died, two of our uh, siblings died before I was born. So I was born into sadness. But at the same time, I was born into love and I was born into um, a house that was, I would say happy, even though it was sad. It's very hard to, to convey that when um, child has died or a parent or someone has died, the house will be affected. People in the house will be affected by it. The um, residue of that is, uh, is what happened for me being the last child. I was the last one born. I uh, was neglected. And I thought, I, and I found that out later in life. And when I found it out, I had to realize that my sister born a year and three months ahead of me was neglected as well because there I was and there she was and we both little little kids, uh, toddlers and um, there was our mother crying and uh, needing family to reach out and help her which they did we had a lot of family to chip in. I was gonna say what child wants to be um, wants a surrogate mother or or a caregiver, they want their own. Okay, <laughs> I'm resilient. I was resilient as a child. And as an adult, even more resilient. Once I knew it was possible to be strong and it's okay to be strong. So. Okay. Your two siblings that had already died before you were born. How did they die? How did they die? Um, one of them died. Um, their ages. I used to know which one died first, but one was about um, eight months old. Um, he, I think he's the one who was dro uh, dropped on the concrete. He, uh, my cousin had him on her shoulders. You know, people do it with their children sometimes or kids do with little children. They'll put them on their shoulders and they'll um, carry them around. Well, she somehow dropped him. He hit his head. And people didn't know then, but they let him go to sleep. He cried and they let him go to sleep. And that, you know, during that time, a um, blood clot can occur or some other damage can occur. And that's what happened to him. Now, the second uh, brother who died, uh, died of rheumatic heart today, uh, 2021 or any time recently, would not have died from rheumatic heart. He would uh, survive. So 
That was probably 1942, 1943. Okay. And so your, your mom, grandma, Leo, she, Lillian, um, she, was dealing with this depression. And so your father was in the household as well. Do you think that he was dealing with the depression from those children having passed as well? Uh, I would say yes, because I've grown up a lot emotionally. I would say we overlook sometimes how painful um, any experience is to a man. It's like my mother was there And I look back and I don't remember my father sitting around crying because my father was probably at work or he was somewhere drunk or something trying to survive the crisis they were in. Because who can figure out why two of their children die? I must have done something wrong. And um, the, the story goes that couples will fight when something like this happens. They blame each other. And so while their marriage probably wasn't good anyway, because of the stories I know about, I would say uh, my father stayed away to make himself not be a problem. But what, sorry. But she really needed him there. If I know how anybody feels, you know, they would prefer to have all the family present. Okay, so your father dealt with depression with drinking and your mom, how does she handle depression? How did you see depression? Um, I saw it the way I saw it is she cried a lot. And then uh, as I grew older, my mother had a um, self-pity way about herself. She had a lot. She was strong and did things to function. But she also had a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of self-pity. Like, like, why do things always happen to me kind of attitude, which I think a lot of mothers have that attitude for some reason. And um, she had it real bad. She had it up to even uh, when I was an adult. And uh, toward her, she died in 19, I mean, 2006. I didn't notice that kind of pitiful attitude for maybe 20 years before that or 25 years. Okay. And then your dad drank. And so what was that like seeing him drink? I didn't see him drink. Um, I was so little. My dad was 45 when I was born. So I was born in 1945. So um, and he's born, my dad was born in 1900. <laughs> Figure that out. Wow. Huh? Yeah, those numbers. Um, I didn't see him drink, but I saw him come home drunk. But I didn't know he was drunk because as a child, I just wanted to uh, what's the word I'm looking forward to invade his life? You know, I said, oh, daddy's home. I want to now talk. Now it's time to talk to daddy kind of feeling I had. But um, daddy would go to sleep and he would say, you kids shut up and don't don't wake me up. Don't don't bother me. Something like that. I barely remember the words, but I do remember we were not to bother him while he was sleeping. Now I know he was just hung over. Or he was just drunk. Okay, so you had these two parents that were dealing with depression and they were dealing with the deaths of their children. And they also had their own family, uh, marital uh, issues going on. But then you also said it was a happy household and there was joy in the house. And there was like, uh, I, I'm not sure how you worded it now, I would have to rewind it, but there was this dichotomy happening. So tell me about that. What were the happy times like with your mom? What were the happy times like with your dad? Um, my dad, um, 
would take us, come and get us in the morning, uh, wake us up and take us to um, a little area. We live in a suburb and we would go to like the city, they called it. And it's just about maybe 20 miles away or less. And we, he put us in the car. He had a 1949 Ford. I remember that. It was dark. I don't remember the exact color, but I think it was blue. Uh, and he was put all of us in the car. I barely remember my oldest sister because she was like nine years older. But she, he would put us, the four of us, in the car and take us and buy us um, milk in a carton and um, donuts. Mm. Wow. <laughs> he did that every day. But when he did it, or if we were riding with him to go visit family, he would stop and buy Jay's potato chips. Oh, my God. <laughs> When you're little, you don't know uh, the options available, and surely you don't know about computers. Because <laughs> computers are way like 40, 50, 60 years coming, you know? And um, so our lives are extremely simple. We had fun. This is some of the fun with my father. My father was- You what? He didn't want us to call anybody sir. Mm. Yes, sir. You know, kids. some kids are trained to say, yes, sir, yes, mm. ma'am. My father would go bananas if we said, yes, sir. <laughs> why do you think that was? I know why it was. He didn't like the white man. <laughs> mm. uh -huh. One time my father beat up a white man for touching my brother's hair on the bus. He kicked his natural butt. Now, I didn't see that. I just heard about it. Hearing about it is enough, you know, from other family. Um, we also had fun skating in, in the house. We lived, uh, we had like, concrete floors with um they, they weren't tile floors, they were more concrete. And um, we would skate across, put on these skates, share skates with each other. And um, those who were older, like my sister, she had her own skates and we were too little to get in her skates. But you know how little kids are, they'll get in them anyway. <laughs> and so we'd skate in their neighbors, like the kids in the block, um, 12, 13, 14, 15 would come over and play bid whist with my sister and my brother who were older. They were old enough to play. And I was probably four or five. I would watch them slam those cards on the table. Oh my God, I wanted to learn how to do that. I didn't know what they were playing. I knew the name of it. If they told me, I didn't know how to play it. I didn't know anything, but I liked the excitement of them playing that game. And I learned to play like that over my lifetime and slam the cards and throw a <laughs> card up on your forehead. Oh my God. And uh, the competition and the way they talk and the wolf tickets, all of that, I loved every bit of it. It's dark. And uh, we had lots of friends. We would burn um, jump ropes were made of um, cotton, I think, twisted cotton. And we would burn those and uh, twirl them around the way kids do. Um, sparkles mm. in the summertime we play with those grandma how was it growing up with grandma uh, my mother was a to my knowledge a great cook and so she put her heart and soul into being with us and giving us service so to speak like cooking washing our clothes having us do chores around the house we didn't call them chores we just said do your I don't remember the name of it. 
your job is to do this, your job is to do that. And so we do our jobs. My brother only had to empty the trash. <laughs> and, and my sisters and I, we each had to be in the house before dark, dust dark. And uh, there's very little few places to go anyway, but um, we were expected to be in the house by dust dark. She would sing in the kitchen uh, sad songs and end up crying, and then I'd end up crying. And um, she wasn't fun exactly, but she was present and she was loving. She. I, I, I remember her um, always being available for every event that came up. For example, when I um, my first day of school, I was four years old. Back then, you went to school um, if you're going to turn five by a certain time. And um, so I went to school. And on the way to school, I was crying because I didn't want to go to school. I wanted to be with my mother. Because um, the thing about my mom when I was with her, I always felt connected and I always felt safe and I always felt loved. Um, even though I probably, um, the neglect didn't dismiss her love. And um, I remember her actually holding me in her lap when I was probably three years old. And I remember, I barely remember her breastfeeding me. And I always felt connected to her, but she'd cook and uh, have us all sit at the table to eat together. Those are the things that mattered a lot to me that, that gave me joy, the excitement of being there with my family, sitting there at the, at the kitchen table. That was fun. You know, like just being together. I mean, if you could call that fun, it was fun to me as a child because uh, there's nothing greater than the love I felt when I sat with my family at the Christmas, I mean, at the um, kitchen table. Okay, so you, you mentioned- My mother um, was religious. Uh, she'd take us to church on Sundays. And I don't remember being every Sunday, but I remember we went. And um, she'd cry in church. And I can remember hating church. Um, even though I went on my own uh, adventure to find uh, the right church, looking for my higher power, looking for God. I, uh, as I was 8, 9, 10, I started to look for my own church. But... Um, I never felt like that was the absolute answer because every one I get to was time to go to another one, another church. <laughs> Did she pressure you into believing what she believed? She, she was like a lot of people throwing around verses. Then the main verse she told me that I grew to dislike, to hate, and the same one I love today. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I heard that all the time. Mm. And then as I got older, my grandmother moved in with us and she would quote from the Bible. So my relationship with um, religion was really confusing, especially when my mother cried. I couldn't see any purpose in church because mm. it was a place to cry. And it made my mother cry. And mm -hmm. I, didn't want anything, I didn't want anybody or anything making my mother cry. Because mm -hmm. it felt like when she cried, it felt like the end of the earth, if there was such a thought mm -hmm. for a child my age. 
but the feeling that it's the end of the earth. You took you said so much, Mama, that I want to go deeper into, but I, I gotta stay, stay, I have to stay broad, but I can go deep. Like um, you sure can. You talk about your you talk about your grandmother. I want to talk more about your grandmother, but um maybe we'll have you come back another time. But mm-hmm. what's your tell me briefly about your grandmother? You said she moved uh, in. The with biggest you. thing with my grandmother and even my mother having depression and my mother. Uh, she, as I became a teenager, she fussed at me a lot, and so did my grandmother. I was fussed at all the time. Criticized. What kind of things did your grandmother say to you? What kind of criticism did she say to you? She used to tell me I was interested in boys in a very vulgar way. And um, she told me when I was 10 that I had a craving for boys and that um, I was going to be nothing. I'm trying to remember words. I worked so hard on my thinking I barely remember the word she used but it was something like you're never going to be anything because I don't remember why she could you could you feel love from her though at all yeah yeah I didn't feel it um it took me I missed the love while I was angry and I was angry at her too much to love her all the time (laughs) okay okay so okay okay let me backtrack a little bit so you had said something about your you and your sister being neglected how are you all neglected um if my mother's crying and and uh lying in the bed all the time and just kind of dragging herself around to get to do the next thing she needs to do and she was having other people help her or my father and my my family just they just pitched in so if they're pitching in and my mother's not available at certain periods in my young life. My, when I was first born, she almost died having me, uh, along with having had two kids die already. So it's like she has this tra- traumatic life going on, and, and her husband is not available all the time. So I'm not with her much of those days. Mm. I'm not being breathed on, so to speak, by her. Other people are breathing on me instead of my mother, you know? Uh, picking me up, taking me places and changing my diaper. Or if I peed on myself and I was three or two, oh, I, I don't know who's going to pick who I don't know who's going to take over. Is it my mother or these other people, these other loving people? They were loving people. They were not unloving, but do you they resi- were not my mother. Do you resent her? I don't remember ever resenting her for not. No. Okay. I remember ever resenting her for her emergencies in her life, I felt compassion. Mm-hmm. In fact, we, when we were little, we used to all sit around the, on the bed with her and try to comb her hair because you know, she's got that African hair. Um, mm-hmm. And so we were, I remember combing her hair when I was about two or three. <laughs> mm-hmm. We always just try to try to do something with her, just get all over her, just be on, mm-hmm. just all of us just crawling on her and <laughs> like little babies, you know. Okay, so tell me about your siblings. Oh, oh, we placed that. Oh, we had, oh my God, we, we made popcorn. A popcorn wasn't like today. We had Jiffy Mix by the time we were 10. Not Jiffy Mix, Jiffy, Jiffy popcorn, which is in a um, tin container and, it pop, and it's, it's got a bag, a tin bag that pops open all the way when the popcorn finishes popping. And um, but before that, we would just put our popcorn in a pot with some um, butter or uh, then I remember when margarine started 
anyway, so we would put that in there and we would um, pop the popcorn and sit around and listen to Enter Sanctum, which is, is like a spooky, a spooky storytelling on the radio. We had radio back then, no TV yet. Wow. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> can you believe it wait so but how many siblings did you have there's four or do us. you have in total uh, uh we, there were four of us at that time and and it would have been six and um let's see my oldest sister was the leader my brother uh, i don't know how to describe my brother but it, it, he was like a cooperative type of guy like type of boy like he didn't really want to be with these girls these three girls his three sisters <laughs> and uh it's like he had a second life the whole time i knew him it was like he had another life besides the life he had with us you know and um that tells me today he was probably in a another world so to speak like um having his own fears or his own concerns um, that's the only way I can interpret that. But anyway, mm -hmm. we would have fun. Um, and a lot of our fun was fun until it wasn't. And, uh, and, and like uh, one time, I uh, today I have uh, claustrophobia. I, I don't have it, but I experience it. If I go into MRI, I feel closed in. And, I, I, you know, it takes a lot to get me into one of those machines. I can get on elevator. I mean, I'm not absolutely um, claustrophobic. But back when I was little, probably four or five, uh, my, my sister and brother, uh, the little ones, not the oldest one didn't do this. She didn't participate with us. She was like in her own world too. She was nine years older. So um, they held the blanket down over my face and I couldn't get out. Mm. And it held it for me, it probably was seconds, you know, but it felt like hours if there's such mm. a thing to a little kid. So, um, I think that was the beginning of the claustrophobia, mm. you know, because um, if I thought someone was pulling something over my face, I would just immediately, you know, go bananas. So we had a lot of fun playing, but some of our playing was dangerous because we didn't have adults looking after us every mm. single day. You know, you need you really need an adult watching kids all day long. Because they're, um, they're rambunctious. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and they come and they up with all know. kind of stuff. Great kids don't know. And so, um, like I said earlier, we roller skated on the floor in the house. Uh, oh, oh, we played in the yard. I dug dirt. I, I remember eating dirt. I remember making dirt pies on my own. I remember uh, my younger sister. She and I were friends more so than sisters. She was my best friend. So, but she didn't always like to play what I like to play. I like to play in mud pies or something. She liked to... Um, do other things. I wanted to play baseball, uh, hit the balls out in the, uh, we had an area right in the back of our, where we lived and um, all, everybody hung out there. Oh my God, it's not hanging out there. It was not like hanging out now. It's not the same thing. <laughs> Wait, where did you grow up in Chicago? In the projects? Uh, in a, in what the project? In the suburb. It's a, it was really not a project in, in the beginning. It was supposed to be a, um, project home home project where you buy the houses the, the place you live in you were going to buy it but it somehow it didn't go through for, for whatever reason uh without you know calling it a race problem 
it was a place for black people to go that they could prosper in that particular city. Was it rough? Not when I was there, it got rough maybe 10 years after I left. Uh, things went happen. We had a few drug addicts and dope fiends, they call them. Um, but they were not dangerous. We just, everybody just be rooting for them. Uh, my uh, uh, younger sister, which I, I told you earlier is a year and three months older, she and I were like buddies. Mom insisted on that. If we went across the street down, uh, one time we walked to a store, which was about uh, maybe five or six blocks away. For us, that was big. Um, she'd always say things like, don't come home without her. And don't you come, neither one of us to come home without the other one. So we learned to, if we weren't friends uh, close, we lived like we were close because of our experiences. We couldn't go any place without the other one. But how, how was growing up for you just as you? Like, what were, you con- what were your inner concerns? What, were you, what was it like being in school? Because um, I know you've mentioned insecurities to me get, that you I had and stuff like that. But I was um, afraid a lot. I was afraid of would-be bullies. I remember one time my sister beat up a girl or threatened a girl. I barely remember now. For uh, her name was Tatrina. <laughs> Tatrina. <laughs> she was going to beat me up. And my sister, who was close to my age, Frances, she kicked her butt. Everybody went to the same school. And um, Odell was kind of a bully. And she was uh, a real fighter. And I remember she and I used to get into it, but um, I didn't remember fighting her as much as this particular day when my dad told me to go kick her ass. And uh, I did fight her. I don't remember winning or losing. I just remember not wanting to disappoint my father. And uh, somehow it just seemed like Odell and I never fought again. That was the last time. But I was afraid of other kids and I felt, Wow, real quick, I felt less than right away. And now that I know more about uh, the um, child development, I realize it's because I missed out on a couple of stages in my infancy and in my um, next stage, two and three years old, I, I missed out on part of my development, which is to be nurtured in, in a certain way. So uh, when I got to school, I look back, I didn't make any friends, or if I made friends, I don't remember. And uh, I remember right away feeling like other kids were, I won't say better, but I was different than them. And I remember feeling alone in school. Um, But as I started to connect after kindergarten, I don't know if kids should go to school kindergarten or not anymore. Mm. Um, Why you say that? I don't know if five is a good age to start school. Five what years age? old. What age do you but, think is a good age to start school? I think there should be some socialization of something for children. I can't say exactly what age, maybe six. Um, so, but the thing is, as I attach to school and attach to teachers and attach to the kids in the classroom and start to laugh in the class more than be scared, 
my performance was uh, just outstanding. I was an outstanding student in school. Outstanding. <laughs> and to think about it, I was proud of that. And I felt honored. I felt pride about being honest. I felt pride about uh, doing a good job. I felt a whole lot of pride. I can remember that feeling right this moment of feeling I got the good grades. I went to I went to school every day. I got I've got my uh, honor roll. <laughs> I'm on the honor roll, and um, I got E's. I think we got E's back then. We, our grade system was uh, E. Uh, no superiors, just e, e is equal to A, and so on. Okay, so we talked about your childhood. Now I want to go into your young adulthood, your womanhood. You grew up at a time in the 60s, in the 70s, where there was a lot of racism, and it was also a lot of, there's still a lot of racism, but the civil rights movement was taking place. What was your role in that? Did you, did, is it correct that you marched during uh, the civil rights movement? What did you do exactly? I did, but um, my participation was local. Uh, there were a lot of um, activists around uh, boycotting stores. I was more involved in that, boycotting stores or uh, getting signatures to start a new cable TV channel for I think it was Channel 26 back then. Uh, I was soliciting to get um, cable on, on TV. And that was uh, toward Black people prospering and doing better. And uh, most, but most of the, most of my work was um, boycotting. And, and the boycotting we did was, for example, there was a store called AMP, A, letter A, and then uh, and and P. And it was big, like say Jules in Chicago or Ralph's in California or Kroger somewhere. It was that type of store, it was a supermarket. And um, they would hire black people. You could be a bagger, but you could not be a cashier. Can you believe that? Mm -mm. And uh, so we would pick at those stores and then um, we would pick at almost any place that had anything to do with holding black people back it was hard to know what stand to take for me to know what was going on and to know what stand to take because much of the activity was wherever Dr. King was, which in this case um, very often was in the South. What kind of racism did you experience growing up? Um, I lived among black people mostly. Uh, in high school, there was one uh, girl that was my friend. Sometimes I went to get around her white friends she was no longer my friend. We, we, mm -hmm. we used to laugh together in the classroom or wherever we were together. And then I'd see in the hallway and she would ignore me. And she was white? She was white, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. She was, I, I believe she was Jewish mm -hmm. because I remember being in a class with her and something was said implying that she was Jewish. She was one of the Jewish students in the classroom. Um, I remember there was something going on. I was very little, but I remember something going on at, in the city, as I, as I mentioned earlier. We lived in the suburb and um, we would ride to the city and I'd hear about riot, the word riot. 
there's riots over here, riots over there. And I was afraid of those things, but I didn't experience uh, racism until direct racism until I was in high school with some of the white kids. And I remember when I was with some black kids, if we saw white kids, we'd probably argue or say insulting things to them. And oh. um, go ahead. No, go ahead. And then when I was started to work, I worked in a, a white company and I changed and I was affected by their racial comments. They like to make racial jokes or pass around papers, cartoon like papers. Really? To, uh, yeah, some would be sexual, but some would be, you know, which covered any of the white males love to do that on a job, pass around uh, pictures uh, that they drew or someone drew. They don't do that anymore because that, that's a sexual discrimination lawsuit. Right, right. No, I'm just saying that's uh -huh. a good. But thing. they would be, a, it would be mostly intended for men, but the racial part, they just say it to you, just say whatever they want to say. What was this? Just say, like, uh, say that again. Was this where you were working at IBM? Yeah, that's my first serious encounter with race, racism. Um, I knew a couple of guys, white guys liked me, uh, you know, wanted to date me, but that wasn't going to happen. But because, what kind of, because what? Go ahead. Because the line was drawn, you know, and not like I would have dated them, but I'm just saying there was nothing normal around there with, um, just do your job and get in and get out. That didn't happen. You had to face almost every day. Oh, Henry's here. Henry didn't come. He, he still got his curly hair. His, his hair is whatever they're talking about his hair or uh, something racial. If they knew your weak spot, like, like Henry, a guy on the job was from um, his family did sharecropping. So they would say insulting things to him. Like racial jokes around and um, but black people were strong. We, we hit them strong back. We've come back strong, you know, or when I uh, began to wear an Afro at work, because that came after, I think after Dr. King was killed, a lot of um, people turned around, a lot of black people turned around what they wore. And um, as, as I said earlier, everything was formulating. And so um, the first day I came to work with my hair and Afro, one guy was just laughing and said, oh, it looks like she stuck her finger in the socket. Just because you know how really how who did yeah. you did you say anything back to him? I went to straight to the man to top manager and told him. And what, what happened? I don't remember. Not much, but, he oh, okay. knew, you know, I don't remember anything, but things were but you exploding. Spoke yeah, but things were exploding at IBM in, in that way where people were saying, well, how 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 is this? How are you conforming by allowing this to happen? Well, why don't you give? Uh, I was really doing very well. I was getting all the raises, but I still was raising hell. <laughs> mm. they, they couldn't do anything right by me. And they would even ask me, what do you think is fair? And they would ask me, do you? I was actually there when women, and when they decided downtown, all, the, all of, around the United States was deciding, could women wear pants to work? Wow. I mean, that's exciting, exciting moment in history. So I was right in the in the middle of, of any and everything that was new um, back then. So during this time, you, you're dealing with racism, you were dealing with the things growing up from your childhood. How did you cope? Um, with anger, insults, um, standing up, uh, finding fault with people that I worked for, the white people, always on their case, always telling them what they did wrong. It's a lot of pressure. It's a lot of um, stress for me at that time. 
Okay, I guess what I'm trying to get to when I ask you how you cope is you were drinking during this time. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. I, I, <laughs> I've been sober so long, you know what I mean? <laughs> I didn't forget I drank. I just didn't think about it. <laughs> oh, yeah. When did you start I, drinking? I was 14 years old. And um, my sister and I, I think we had our first drink together with some school friends. And my first drink was Boone's Farm. I think it was a lot of people's first drink back then. But it was, um, I drank a lot of it. And I remember being, um, I didn't use that word then, but I was drunk. And I remember um, needing to get home from my friend's house. And um, it looked like everybody was drunk that drank something. And like we all were attending to our sickness <laughs> and, and kind of a preoccupied thing, not something spoken, but something that if I would look back, like I'm looking at a picture, I would remember all a handful of children around the age of 14, 13, 15. Okay. And so, so you drank from that time up until? I drank from 14 occasionally. Uh, until I was an adult, I drank on weekends. I partied on the weekend. And then my uh, drinking progressed. By the time I was 27, I wanted to uh, do something about my drinking. I wanted to drink better. I wanted to be more controlling with my drinking. And I tried so many times to get help with it by changing up types of drinks I would have and uh, swearing I wouldn't drink at certain times. I wouldn't drink at work. I remember one time I did drink at work, but that was the only time I ever drank at work. I was afraid to be smelling like alcohol at work. Okay, so you've been sober how many time, How many years now? I've been sober since 1975, which is, um, I was 29 at the time. And um, that means 46 years ago. So you haven't had a drink in 46 years? No, I haven't wanted one either. Okay, and so you were able to do that through a 12-step program and No. No. What? Oh, I was me. I got sober. I was sober before I went to a 12-step program. What what was going on for you that you would even know that you yeah. needed to stop drinking? Well, okay. I was drinking without control. I was totally out of control. I was drinking I was drunk when I get in a car. That scared me. I didn't know I would do that. I'd be drunk and curse somebody out. I didn't know I would do that. These kinds of things really shook me up when I realized what I had done. And then the worst thing of all is I felt so bad about myself that I remember one time telling my sister, I was, I was drunk, but I said, I feel so worthless. And that was probably three years before I um, quit drinking. I had gotten a divorce that that added to my drinking. I drank more okay. and more. The more things that happened, and I was inhibited. I was shy as I could be. Mm -hmm. So I, I did that drinking. If I went to a bar, I'd have to drink before I go to the bar with my friends. Or it was fun. A lot of it was a lot of fun. But when I go past that line, and I was the only one who was drunk and throwing up, I didn't like that. But I didn't know I really wanted to quit drinking. I just wanted to control it. I wish I could just, how come I can't just take one or drink three? 
and three would get me just right, you know, then I could dance and then I could, you know, I could relax and and I could have a full conversation or I could eat, you know, I could go out and eat and, and, and feel comfortable instead of feeling inhibited when I go to go out to eat with people. I, I went to a psychologist to have somebody to talk to about what was going on with me, with my drinking. She told me, the psychologist told me, I want you to go and get some help besides with your alcohol. And don't come in here drunk or on Valium ever. If you do, I don't want to see you again. But you must go someplace and get help. So by that Sunday, when I was drinking beer, I had a six pack and I only started on the first one. I was drinking some of it and I put the beer down and I said, I don't want any more. That was my last drink. So taking her advice, two days later, I went and got some help with my drinking. It wasn't until 30 years later that I realized I didn't need help with the drinking. I needed the help with the living because I'd already stopped drinking. Before I got the help, I had already stopped drinking. Okay, so let's move forward. So you, you had two children, Karen and I. How was it raising two, uh, two girls by yourself? Um, it wasn't easy, but it wasn't bad. I... The biggest thing is I wanted to do it. Each one, each of you was born. I was glad you were here. And I'd broken up with um, your father. So I had to do it on my own. And I, I'm the kind of person, it looks like um, in a crisis, I just get going. I look at what to do next, what to do next, what to do next. And at the same time, have some fun and enjoy mm -hmm. my life with, um, with my children, as well as try to have um, fun with friends and um, find someone else to be with, you know? So it's a lot of pressure. It was a lot of pressure, it was scary, but I took on a lot of things I didn't have to take on, like taking you to soccer. I remember that was the most important thing in your life for me is that you got to soccer. Mm. soccer and soccer practice to the games I wanted you to have a full life so and I felt the same way about Karen so I was always pushing to do things not just to take care of you but to expand your life so that you had a fuller life and you did things that I didn't do like swim and, and not with a hit and miss but with a constant opportunity to, to learn to swim oh. and I remember when you made junior um Lifeguard. Junior lifeguard. I thought about uh, maybe she'll want to get in the Olympics. You know how parents do. <laughs> <laughs> but I did learn to leave you and Karen alone. It took a lot to leave to try not to direct your life for you. But um, I'd say in a lot of ways it was fun. At the same time, it was pressure because I was being a father and a mother and. I was um, not making the kind of money that I so well deserved to make. So how did you overcome that struggle of not having enough money to raise or not having enough money to do the things you want to do for your children? I never stopped trying to, to find 
the better place or the, the better uh, income. I never stopped. I, I remember um, I used to do so many little small businesses on the side trying to um, increase my income. I remember one time I had uh, two jobs. I worked uh, in the daytime in an office. And then at night I worked for Weight Watchers. And I remember one time you said to me, <laughs> I don't know, you might have been about six years old. You said, all you think about is working. You just want to work. <laughs> and I, I kind of laughed because I knew you didn't know. <laughs> you mm. didn't have any idea of uh, what I was doing, why I had to be gone, you know. So when I go to Weight Watchers, I take you with me. And then I didn't have to have a babysitter or think about somebody mistreating you. And um, I could... I could let you sit down and do your homework or whatever it is. And then I feel more complete because it's about me feeling better too. You know, that I had um, done what I could do as a mother to make sure you were getting pieces of me or parts of me that helped you to feel secure. That was very important to me. I remember feeling so proud to see you doing the lectures for uh, you just had like this confidence about you and you would be walking and putting the flyers down or, you know, talking to people like you had such this, this energy about you and you'd be, you were so excited and just, you just walked with such um, grace and power and just like, you know, enthusiasm. Uh -huh, so uh -huh, uh -huh. you were one of the, the beginning, you started the Weight Watchers, you and I'm sure there were other people doing it, but you yeah, got it going. Yeah, definitely other people. <laughs> <laughs> so, so um, you, you struggle with money and you had these jobs, but you also went on to get educated. Oh, and but I did. I did. And uh, I would say to anybody, if you are hard, having a hard time with money, go back to school. I mean, that's not, if you can't, if you by now haven't thought of how to make more money, just do something to get training that you see somebody else is already getting money, you know? So um, I went back to school. I got a master's degree and I was, I graduated at age 61. And I began to excel at this at the LA County job, you know? Wait, wait, so, so, uh, I, so you, you had a gap of struggling up until then though. Oh, what I did a lot of gaps. And, and so and, what uh, were you doing? You were just getting different jobs. Yeah. Like I worked at, um, ComEd. I had worked at, um, a place called, um, uh, Farrell. Okay. And, and over there it was, uh, they dealt with resin. It's funny how now people are using resin for artwork, but, um, I was over there uh, for a few years. What is your master degree in? Social work. But wow. before that, I had um, worked at um, an agency that paid for my master's degree. Wow. And that was exciting. And uh, but I just to have did... that opportunity is pretty mm -hmm. amazing. And but... I did it. I did all the work that it takes to fill out the papers uh, when when they turned me down for because this wasn't the timing wasn't right or uh, I had to go get some more paperwork done by the people I was working for and missed, missed certain dates, I still kept going for it. Okay. And, um, and during this time, you also experienced loss. Yeah, right around at my graduation, um, my family came to my graduation. And um, while I was working on my final papers, it was uh, April 16th. 
and I was going to graduate uh, May 26th. On April 16th, I believe it was on a Sunday afternoon around 4.30, I dropped to my knees and started crying. And then I got up. I was trying to figure out why was I crying because I wasn't feeling bad. I said, oh, maybe it's the stress or whatever. But I had a feeling. And then my other one of my sisters called me. She said, um, your sister, uh, our sister died. And so uh, I asked her what time. And the time she gave me was the time that I dropped to my knees and started crying. So I do. There's another time that I know, I know there's a higher power that's connecting us all, you know? Mm. And then at my graduation, my mother was there. My, my sister who died, of course, was not there, but my other sister was there. And some other family came in from Chicago. And, um, oh, back up. That was April and then May 10th came I, um, my brother had been sick uh, with the diabetes and, and some other stuff going on with his health. And he died May 10th. So uh, during my class, when I was doing my uh, thesis, uh, uh, my group presentation, that's what it was, a group presentation, the professor asked, the asked me first, she said, is it okay if I tell everybody what has happened to you lately? I said, oh, go ahead. And so she told them how my sister died, my brother died, and I could not do my part of my presentation. And my group, there was about five of us in my group, and they carried me all the way through. And, and my graduation was May 26. My mother and other family members came in from Chicago to be at that graduation. And then two months later, which would be July, my mother died. So there were three people uh, kind of like about 100 days apart or 95 days apart, had all died. But I, for some reason, I was very strong. I don't know what had happened, but I was very strong at that time. Okay. So, Mom, what was your greatest challenge raising me? <laughs> your personality. <laughs> what about my personality? <laughs> There's a such thing, and I found this out having you for my child. I realized... I found out there's a such thing as a, a um, willful child, a strong-willed child. That's what it's called. When I, when I found that out, it just helped me relax. I said, I've got a strong-willed child. That's it. And um, another time when, uh, when I was struggling to get cooperation from you or to get along with you or to... Um, handle this personality struggle because what what was happening is that your father and I had broken up and I think you were taking it out on me that's what it looks like mm -hmm. as I look back I think I was the only person you could take it out on as the only person you had confidence in that wouldn't get wouldn't leave you or wouldn't um get upset and um you know, just kind of X you out of my life. I, you, I think you knew that. And so um, there was a mixture of that. But the more I, um, I, I even reached out to get help from um, therapy. And um, I remember taking you to a group where they, um, for children who, teenagers who were kind of difficult uh, in their behavior. 
I remember doing that. And um, I just w didn't want you to fight me so hard because I didn't want that on you to, to be fighting so hard and feel bad about it at some time, other time in your life. Because I know what that's like, you know, to have somebody, um, to be mad at somebody you love, you know. I remember Karen telling me one time that I needed to do, be more, um, what was the word she told me? More of a disciplinarian, not to hit you or anything, but to be more, um, to be stronger in my mothering and um, to not allow you to speak up to me all the time. Because I used to get really angry. How did you deal with my anger? It depends on the issue. If it was something to be done, um, I find myself fussing sometimes. And um, I find myself um, at a loss as to what to do next. Do you Somet sometimes I'd be buying you off and I didn't know I was buying you off, like uh, offering to offering things to you, like what, uh, what we could do. You want to do this? Uh, do you want to go skating Saturday? Uh, you want to get a, uh, those, you remember those skates you wanted, those so-and-so mm. you know, kind of buying you off. And I don't think anybody should ever buy their kids off. You put your, you know, lay it out there, have some consequences, you know? And I was so worried about you that I uh, was too permissive or overly indulgent in, in you as a person, trying to make sure you were okay or make sure you didn't suffer. That but was in my defense, I was very depressed and sad. Not really depressed, but sad and had low self-esteem. So yes, yes, I, knew so I that. needed that extra... Don't you think I needed that extra encouragement? Yes, or? yes. Uh, I gave you plenty of encouragement. Not encouragement, not that's not the word, but you mean discipline or consequences? No, I need no, no. I didn't need the way you did it was good because I needed that extra oh, oh, I coddling. Absolutely. Maybe not coddling, uh -huh, but uh, the extra uh, non. Yeah. The biggest, the hardest part to face was that. You were not going to warm up to me. It's like I was a stranger. Hmm. You didn't, and I didn't want you to have but I that. I still on sent you. you cards and stuff and gave you, wrote you letters. And I was always telling you mm -hmm. how I loved you, even if I got angry and mm -hmm. stuff. Right. And you'd always be doing that apology kind of thing. <laughs> Guilt. I mean, there's not, you weren't, you weren't a bad person. I didn't want you to suffer like you were suffering. Okay. Do you think how angry I was? And you said you were angry in mm -hmm. your 20s and mm -hmm. in, in your adult life do you think that there's a saying like the sins of the child i understand the sins of the parents are upon on the child and like like also like you were talking about you know you're drinking and depression what i didn't get really into the depression you dealt with but like your mom was depressed and your dad was depressed yeah. do you think, I think that I things are all my life yeah do you think mm -hmm. things are generational or like oh it could be like, Mm -hmm. But I'm not so deep into DNA and all that because I think uh, I'll just give a hypothetical. What, say you got 10 kids and let's say there's potential of all of them to have bipolar, whatever. Well, it could skip one of them. So I don't like to say that anything's hereditary. That's not right. That's not good. How did you avoid hitting me as a child? 
I remember hitting you when you had when you had your bike. My bike, bike stolen. was stolen. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, my mother had a fit. She mm-hmm. had, mom happened to be there. She said she just got her bike stolen and you hit her. But okay, but okay, but okay. I feel so bad. <laughs> and okay, but how did you avoid not hitting me at other times? Because I I was. I think it's a mindset. You have to have your mindset. I didn't do it with Karen either. But you how have to do have your mindset that that's not the answer to. Um, I, I name call, no name calling, no, um, nothing to demean the person you are Karen, nothing. I don't care how drunk I was. I didn't, I wasn't ever drunk with you, but, um, with Karen, there's no demeaning remarks. Just the thing I did the worst was probably yelling or, um, yeah, yelling. Cause I, I know hate- some people think, oh, spare the rod, spoil the child, uh, or they you- think, oh, you, you. Like I've heard women call their their daughters bitches or um, men and women call their sons or daughters niggas or like just really you ain't no good or you ain't. And it, and mm-hmm. some people feel like you do that so that they if they got to if they can deal with it at home, they can deal with it in the world because either the white man is going to call them that or somebody else is going to call them that. So they want them to be prepared. Like, did you ever have any of those type of thoughts going in your head that you want to prepare me for the world or something? I never believed in that. I always worked real hard to not say things. I didn't even try to give you a bad example. Like, oh, when you get up, when you get grown, you're going to get a, a child of do you like you doing me? I try to avoid anything that was predicting <laughs> what you could be like or what could happen so that you wouldn't have that mindset. How did you know to do that though? How did you know uh, I, how to raise me? Cause you uh, didn't have a manual no. and not to say I'm the perfect, I was no. the perfect, but, and, and I turned I out to know, be the perfect adult yeah. cause I still have erred, but yeah, overall I'm I a, a well, a well-rounded, a well-mannered person. And I, mm, and I have a, a, a kind, I'm a kind yeah. hearted person. So yeah. how did you do that? And I'm not way off off track. I didn't you're go way all, off track. You're all I've ever wanted you to be. Uh, I think you may have picked mm-hmm. up on some things in front of me. I would hope that. Some right. Of- but how did you know how to raise a child? Because no one gets a manual. I think the biggest thing is I knew what I did not want to happen. I knew I didn't want anybody talking to you like my grandmother talked to me or predicting bad things are going to happen to me. I hated that. Somebody predicting how I'm going to be, you know, oh, when you, you're never gonna, uh, you're never going to be anything. Don't predict nothing for me. And so I didn't want to predict because I'm the leader here. I may not be the boss, but I am the leader. You're following something about me and the words in my mouth are powerful to a child. So I did not want to have to try to figure out how to erase something bad I had said or done to mm. either one of you. Not to say I didn't do some things that are stupid, but um, you know, I, but you can, my, you can mark a child with your words. They'll be carrying yes, it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what do you think? What do you say to children who suffered abuse or who have been talked to like that? How? What kind of words uh, do you have uh, for them? Well. I worked with children. The best thing I would tell them is, is this is not your fault. I make sure I tell when they're young, this is what you're going through is not your fault because your parents are not, you're not in the house with your parent because they may have been foster kids or children who were detained. I would say, this is not your fault. But now as an adult that is carrying on these ideas Mm -hmm. that were, yeah, know that they have to find out what they're thinking about themselves first. 
They need to be interested. And I think it's not my business to get up because I've done it. I've tried it to get up in my relative's face and tell them, well, you need to work harder or go to therapists or do this or do that. I find a person has to be interested in the pain they're suffering and not want that pain to go on any longer. I think a person needs to know they're in pain. That all this talking they're doing, um, say, um, criticizing other people or finding fault with their children or fussing and screaming or whatever they're doing, know that you're in some kind of pain. But if, they, if they've been abused, that's valid pain. So how are they supposed to, okay, so now they know they're in pain, but they were in pain uh, because they were abused or they were mm -hmm. neglected or whatever. But I, I, it's, yeah, I was going to add a little more. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, it's okay. And then I was going to say, it's a lot of hard work. You've got to know that it hurts. If you're not, if you're not aware that it even hurts, because some people might say, oh, that's in the past. No, it's not. It's in the present. It didn't happen in the present, but the thoughts are in the present. And the way you treat yourself is in the present. And your experiences are in the present. So if they're not all good and sweet and loving and you're not happy with it, find out what's going on and get help. You must get help. But like so I've been a kind of person always, have always gone out for help of some kind. But it's like you went to a 12 step program, but everybody doesn't want to do a 12 step program. And that 12 step program does require you to delve into your past and to look at resentments and look at fears and do like a, an inventory and all that stuff. But a person who doesn't want to do that and they're drinking or they're doing drugs or they're, you know, mm -hmm. how are they going to see that pain? And how are they, and let's say they see that pain, how are they going to know to make a connection to their drugging or drinking, right? And then how are they going to go and get help? What, like what answers does a person have when they're in that much pain that they can't even see that they're in pain? What do they do? And they don't want to go to a 12 step program. That's, you well, I mean? you're saying too, because you just are, rare to go to a 12 step program. So I know I said a lot, very but rare, no. especially mm -hmm. to go on your own, so to speak. Right. So what does a person do? Uh, it looks like you said two things. You said they don't want to go. And then you said uh, they're just drinking and drinking. And it sounds like you're saying they don't know or feel anything about what they're doing. But I'm sure there's some people around them that are telling them they need to quit drinking or something. Okay. But take, here's the thing. Go but ahead. take away the drinking. Okay. I'm just using that as an example. Okay. An abused child. It can be up. just a grown up abused child who's coping with food, who's coping with um, being in sexually abusive yeah, relationship and, or whatever. And they don't see the connection to the pain and they can't I understand or they find a connection to the pain, but they don't want to go to the way of help that we may think is the way so of help. I'm, I'm saying, I believe this though, that for a lot of people, they cry out, Oh God, help me. So many people who don't even believe in God, will say, oh, oh, Jesus, you know, help me, Jesus, in a crisis, right? People do that. They just do, and I've seen it. And then they start blaming God or whatever they start doing. But in my experience, these are moments where something's going to happen right after that. 
and you're going to know something is different in that moment. And that there is something that heard you say, oh, God, help me. Mm. And you may get some instructions on what to do. Now, mm. instructions can be something like you were crying, you're so depressed, you're crying. Oh, God, help me, Lord Jesus, whatever people say, right? And somebody knocks on your door and, they, and you let them in and they start telling you about something, whatever it is. That could be the very thing that is the answer to your, oh, God, help me. If and when you say that, because this is something I'm almost guaranteed somebody's going to say. When you say, oh, God, help me, check it out. It may not be that day because you're not in charge. You can't put the time on it. If you were in charge, you wouldn't be in trouble. Whoever you are, that would include me. So if I'm not in charge and I'm begging for help, am I thinking something's listening to me or am I just talking to myself? Mm -hmm. I, I guess I'm trying to, there's so many people who are listening, right? Because I, I, I think there's so many people who are suffering in the world, like who have been abused or neglected or mistreated and they act out in different ways. Um, and, but they don't even know they're in pain. How do we get people who are in pain? I, I guess I'm getting too, okay, hold on. I'm getting too philosophical. Uh, I'm getting too deep. And I'm, I guess I'm trying deep, to get you to answer deep. everything. It's vague. <laughs> what you're asking is vague because it's not on any exact example. Okay. It, it's like this, for example, um, if the person is not at any of those places, it just will happen that they will get to that place. Now, some people are going to come in and off this earth and never have those experiences. I have learned to, to just put it in the hands of the universe because ultimately it doesn't, um, it doesn't require a lot from me. Mm. It doesn't require, require me to be in charge or to know all the answers for that person. But I'm the kind of person I've always said something, but if I would be quiet, I have to trust that there is something really great that's operating right now. And it, and it is, it does know what's happening to that person. Okay. Okay. So, okay. Let's move on from that. Um, <laughs> so what are you thinking? No, no, no. Cause I'm just thinking, cause I was asking about like me, how I was raised and I just kind of, you know, I wanted to show that like, I, I wasn't, hit and I wasn't abused and the children don't need to be hit or abused, but there are people who are abused and how do we help them? And so my mind was just going off to how do we bring hope to them? And then I'm thinking, oh, well, how are, are they even listening to this podcast? Would they even hear that? Like my mind is just going all uh, kind of places. So I'm just going to come back to my questions I have. Yeah. For you. Okay. Yeah. But, so, but, but here's the thing. I, I still think that something for everybody is an opportunity for an eye opener and an opportunity for them to see something. I can't see for everyone, but while I'm talking to you in this moment, I could say something even now that somebody might hear, no, you have no, you should not be beaten on by your husband or any boyfriend or anybody in your family or anybody on your job or anywhere else. No, this you should never be beaten. You shouldn't have been beaten as, right. as a child either. either. Yeah, you but know? but as a child, how does it, you know, a child is stuck in those situations. They'd be- Anyway, this is like, how but, do we help my them? Thought, my thought is I was out there working with those children and I would ask them this, I'd say, 
Is anybody hurting you? This is even when they're in foster care. I would say, is anybody hurting you right now? And they say, no. And I'd say, if they were, would you tell me? And that makes them tell me mm -hmm. if they did or they didn't. Mm -hmm. That question is a very strong question. If they did, would you tell me? And if they say no, then they're being hit. Mm. Then I have to do more work. I, mm. I have to go and do more work. But that's what it's like. It takes a village to raise a child because that means social workers need to take more accountability and be more invasive and more intrusive and more responsible and more and accountable. There are some good social workers there out are. there. But there's also situations that happen that they can't see everything. And there's a right. whole lot of pressure to do a lot of work. And so while you're doing one job over here, this job over here, uh, this child over here is lacking something or that child over there and you may miss something. Mm. But some people deliberately just just don't do everything. Now that's a different social worker. We're not talking. Okay, about okay, okay, okay. You could do a whole podcast on social work and child abuse. Okay, so how do you keep hope with all you've experienced in your years of life, all of the negativity you've seen, all of the pain you've seen, but also the joy and the light. Like, how do you keep your, how do you stay so sweet, mama? I'm still in the classroom all the time. I'm constantly learning. Um, I look in your face over the years. I looked in your face and I look in Karen's face. And I see that what I'm saying or doing hurts, or I see what I'm saying or doing is, is causing joy. And, and I reassess how I'm presenting myself to life. Is this really how I want to present myself to life? Wow. If it's, if it's negative, do I really want my children feeling sorry for me? Do I really want them worried about I'm getting so old and oh Lord Jesus, whatever. I care about how I present myself as a human being in this world. Am I making, am I helping other people to be stronger and wiser? Or am I a part of feeling like there's no hope and there's no God or there's no universe? But how do you have that kind of awareness? That's like hyper aware of like I mean I mean I'm like that too you know but I'm just saying it's like it's like just to be to always have to be aware that oh, okay I said that that makes that person feel that way or I, I said this oh they're looking that way it's like you don't want to be going through life constantly but, but adjusting natural, yourself for somebody but it, else but it, it can be as natural as kindness caring what someone thinks is the same as being giving it's no different than um Opening my eyes or closing my eyes. It's not stressful. It's not but it's stressful. caring. It's caring about what others think in a way, not like, oh, caring about what I'm they not, think of I'm you. I'm not deciding what they think. I'm not trying to make them not think it. I'm just caring about me and how I present me to them. I, I learned that kindness is real effective. And in fact, I worked in a place um, before I retired that required you must be kind to the patients. Mm. Hello, and human so, kindness. Mm hmm. And so that it really does work and it really can be taught. And it doesn't mean somebody's going to walk on you. Because that means that is means, a concern. Go ahead. It just means what it means. I'm out of the debating. 
I don't do this kind of debating with That's people. Right. You know, like, oh, it's up. Oh, it's down. No, 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 no. It's not right, up. It's I'm not wrong. down. I don't, uh-uh. I don't have to be right. I really got it that if I'm going to fight with you and you're my daughter and I am the leader, whether I want to be or not, I'm the mother. How does that affect you arguing with me on every subject that comes up? Mm. No, 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 that's not, you know, when I knew that first, is it really that important what you, is it really, it's not that I don't want to be heard or shouldn't be heard, but some of this stuff is plain old trivia, you know, and so, um, or trivial. Trivia. Karen told me once, this is your sister, um, when I was debating something with you as an adult, not that long ago, <laughs> she says, I was telling this, I said, when she said this to me and I said, and, I, and she said, Mom, you are 30 something years older than her. <laughs> <laughs> when she said that, it's like if you had 8,000 dominoes lined up to each other, <laughs> one of them clicks over and it makes all the rest of them click down, you know, go down and flatten out. Like, um, you know what I mean? Domino right, right, like a, a, a ego deflation. But she's always said it, something. But, but she's so wise. And is, so when, she, when I took it in and I decided that was not what I want to do with you, that's not the kind of relationship I want with you, it changed everything. Okay, so take me out of the picture. Enough about me and you with that. How do you stay patient and forgiving just in the world in general? Because we, you know, we're talking about... Too, yeah, I'm sorry, go on with your question. No, go ahead, please. It hurts too bad to hold resentment against somebody. It's like I'm holding resentment against myself. Say, suppose uh, I don't get, don't get invited to something. And I had a couple of women over my lifetime that have been borderline cruel toward me. And um, I don't take anger at somebody else and feel it in me anymore like I did. It's, it's, it doesn't mean I never get angry. It just means I have a system of letting it go. Mm -hmm. I have a system of, okay, I used to talk it through and then I talk it through again. Then I talk it through another time. Then I find all their faults. But now it's like, I don't have room for that. I really am not. I'm, how about this? I'm not even interested. Mm-hmm. That's deep. If you get where you're not even interested for that moment, there's a resentment. I'm angry, whatever. But then suddenly I'm not even interested. But to get to that place of not being interested is a great hurdle, a great bridge to cross because con- there's so it's much conscious. It's conscious. Because in Everything that bridge, right? Everything is conscious and consciousness. But in that bridge, there's this thing that I got to tell them so they'll know for next time not to do that to me. Or if I don't say this, they're going to hurt me next time. Or, you know, they need to be corrected or they whatever. It's always something, mm-hmm. some type of clarification that needs to be made. But if mm-hmm. you could not make that clarification, just go straight to forgiveness, you're free. But it's, it's still a process. Uh, example is uh, Karen went on a trip and the whole trip uh, some she went to a trip with, around family recently and she said the way she handled every situation she didn't like is she put her hands up like in a prayerful uh, position and she prayed and she got mm-hmm. through every single one of those with joy mm. and appreciation and so that's the kind of stuff that I'm open for I, I'm right. constantly in the classroom yeah. so when she told me about that it affected me 
And I and I said, oh, okay. So I can pray about any and everything that's in my um, in my way. Uh, one other thing is, I'm real conscious about not saying something. That, first of all, it doesn't need to be said. And then there's something racing inside of me. I just got to tell him. Well, that's gone. And uh, it came through my wanting to my realizing how much power I really have and effect I have on people that I didn't know. And we all have some on each other, but I didn't want to be the one. And I still don't want to be the one who um, could shut up uh, knowing that mm -hmm. what I was going to say could hurt, hurt the situation mm -hmm. more than, and, and I've had people come right back to me and say, Oh, could you show me how to do this? Or, or I was, uh, why did I, Oh, you know, they apologized to, to me, you know, or asking me how to do something where normally I just be arguing or finding their fault. Well, why would I let them? I didn't even want them to, you know, just finding fault. I think a major hurdle that you overcame that could even led you to be able to have this type of consciousness is overcoming self-pity. And you, oh yeah, something. tell me about that a little bit. Oh, yes, it, it was conscious as well. Uh, but it was brought to mind. So, too often, many of us are carrying, um, attitudes about life that are hurting us and we can't see it we don't know it it's so deep a part of us it could be jealousy it could be envy it could be you know just ill will for everybody whatever it is well self-pity went right along with um my mother having two children to die and then um always crying so and, and always saying negative things about our family being uh, mistreated by other people. Well, I took that in and I was um, um, crying one day and my older daughter, your sister, Karen, um, says to me, this is probably now about 30 something years ago in the eighties. She says, mom, you, you feel too sorry for yourself. And I said, what? And she says, mom, you feel too sorry. I said, well, how do you mean? I mean, I was, I'm thankful. I, I don't know where that came from, why I was so open to hearing why uh, she thought I felt too sorry for myself. She said, well, look at you right now. You're crying mm -hmm. about something. And uh, I was, I was crying about money or something like that. And, um, I kept asking her at different times what what was self-pity because I really didn't know I it been in me so long <laughs> it's like in my blood you know what I mean and um it became a part of my personality and so it gave me a victim attitude and um when I when she told me that in the 80s I worked on that every day of my life and if it ever comes up at all now I can just Tell it get out of here, and it does not dominate my thinking that I am so left out of everything, or that everybody has one up on me, or um, poor little me, you know. So, but it was conscious work. I say this: if you want your life different, you need some kind of direction, but you also need to see what are some of the things in your way. Do you gossip? Well, gossip feels like you must gossip. 
gossip doesn't sound like God doesn't feel like gossip. It feels like, oh, I just got to say this. Did you see her girl? Did you see that? <laughs> it's like, but gossip, I mean, that's like big money now. Like people are getting paid millions and millions of dollars for gossip, like all these celebrity gossip. Yeah. And, and like and he, the E network, the B, mm -hmm, like all these mm -hmm. different networks cater and, to gossip. And what's that lady's name? Um, I can't think of her name, but she Wendy Williams. Yeah, yeah, like her. Yeah. And and back in the day, even in uh, Hollywood, there was such thing as um, gossip, and it was uh, people be paid for that gossip. Yeah, and I, I mean they call them paparazzi is looking for gossip now. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, right? Yeah. So how do you, like why why not gossip? Well, look at it this way: Do I want the gossip on me? Do I want you gossiping about me? Right. And right. some gossip isn't true. Some of it right. is stretched. Right. Uh, some of it is um, repeated insults on the same first insult that happened. It's really a rush to talk about who's in the light in the limelight or who's on TMZ. Oh, that's some kind of oh they did they got a divorce. Gossip to me is. I don't necessarily know something. I think I know something or let me make up something, but I don't know. I'm making it up. I'm really lying on mm. somebody, but I don't know I'm doing that because the juice, the rush is so good to yeah. me, so familiar to me. I'd rather do that. I can't stop it. But it's not just the person gossiping. It's also the person who likes to listen to the gossip because I right. I oh, go to yeah. those channels or I listen to mm -hmm. that. Go to mm -hmm. YouTube because I. But and it, lately, I, I haven't. I don't do it as much because mm -hmm. I don't like the feeling I feel inside of doing it. But I have been one to listen to gossip. Yeah, me too. And uh, and and on these different channels, yeah. Uh, but I have gotten where I've gotten away from it quite a bit, not wanting to hear uh, what happened to so and so. Okay, let me ask you about envy. Uh, what is it? So, you know, one of the seven deadly sins is envy. How have you dealt with envy? Envy, uh, let me let me describe it and let me give a short definition. And uh, if you want to put me on timer, you may have to because I'll talk to you about it from now <laughs> to next week. But um, first of all, envy is wishing for something that you see somebody else just had or they have it. It could be somebody just had a beautiful wedding. Oh, I didn't, I didn't, I want a, I want a wedding like that. I never had a wedding. How come I didn't get a wedding like that? So um, it's wishful thinking, it's wanting, and it's not appreciating what somebody else is getting in that moment that you're not getting it. So it's kind of like that. This is not the definition. This is what it's like. Um, it also has with it a lot of pain because they have it. And then it also has pain because I never had it. I don't think I can ever get it. I, I felt, I used to feel like, uh, it makes you feel like I don't have it. I can't get it. They have it. Why should they have it? I don't have it. It's not enough for everybody. It feels like that. I miss my turn. This is so painful. It takes a lot of work and a lot of super prayer to to give this up first of all to give up this idea that i don't matter that somebody's better off than i am or somebody's better than i am and not only that that if they are better than i am that it matters too much to me 
So I use a, I, that has happened to me in life. It, it was a big block of time when that happened. It started because I was compared with one of my siblings and uh, she was the great one to be like. That's when it got started. But how it kept going was from me. I'm the one who kept saying, I want one of those. How come I don't have that? Or I'm not that, I'm not getting this. So they got an award. Why didn't I get one? But how could I, how could we people in the world avoid envy? And it's everywhere now, as far as like the social media, going yeah, to Instagram, yeah. going to yeah. MySpace, not MySpace, uh, Facebook, like uh, Twitter, uh, all these different apps right, that I, promote I, envy. Right. The, but the biggest thing is that you need to know what it is and need to know it's happening to you because people go right back on every day. Because it's addictive. The, the feeling of wanting to look at what someone else has and wanting it or thinking that you could be doing what but you, I, you I know, you could be doing better if, if, or using them as an example of what you want as if a, a goal mm -hmm. to reach. That's, that's like addicting. It's also um, All in, of that's endorphin true, raising. But even if it's even if it's a um, a rush, even if it's um, wrong, even if it's something you do every day or ten times a day, or you can't wait to do the next one, or all of that has to be realized as painful. It just has to be realized as painful at some point. Now, sometimes you have to hear from somebody else. But just like there was a drive to be on Facebook, there can be a drive to get off. Or just like there was a drive to, to look at everybody on YouTube and all that, it gets to a place where you just can't do it anymore. I, I never signed on Facebook. I never got on MySpace, not because I was old or uh, uninteresting. I felt like it was too much information about me in these places. I didn't like giving out that kind of information. My pe picture. People are not concerned about that as much. They're not concerned and about preserving. No, I get it. But I'm saying that's a valid reason to not give into these places, but, but that's not stopping yeah. people. So, so that's just a basic baby reason for doing it. But the other reason is it hurts to feel envious of all the movie stars. First of all, they had far more money than I have. They have far more opportunity than I have to do the things I'm, I'm envious of. And they're in that circle. They're an actor or they're a, a, a president of a company or they got a new car, whatever it is, they got married. But none and of that matters if I want to see somebody's um, Bentley and I want to see them with their kids. And, I, you know, I'm interested. Yourself, yeah, when you do that, you're making yourself sick. Because it hurts to what if you're envious it hurts to watch people do things you wish you could do instead of them or also with them. Okay, so you're an inventor. Tell me about the process of um, creating, getting uh, a patent and getting your invention out in the market. Uh, How's that going? Uh, well, first of all, I had to realize, is this a good idea? Could the good idea is would it work um, in real life, in real time? Could, could I actually do this invention and... Um, how will I get it patented? I believe in patenting because I don't want to, I don't think you should sit back and worry if somebody else taking your idea and they're going to patent it. Because the patent makes, it, the biggest thing a patent does in the United States is that it says, go ahead and make this, go ahead and make what I have, but I'm going to sue you and I'm going to win because I have the patent. So that's basically, you know, the simple way of putting it. But a patent 
it's what's so good about a patent it stays in the patent office forever you have to upgrade it every now and then every 17 years you have to upgrade it or whatever their rules are but that's the background on it the it's, idea was great but making it actually work has been the hard part so you you've been working on this invention you keep fine-tuning it and your your next goal is to get it on the market yeah um how what are your hopes about this about your invention I want to be independently wealthy, but I also want to put my ideas out into the world. I just want whatever I'm doing for somebody to use it. It's exciting to know it is very useful, the one that I, I recently did. I have two patents, by the way. But the second patent, just is to know it'll have my name on it. And, um, and be out in the world. It'll be out in the world and it's useful. That's the most beautiful thing is that it's very useful. And um, Mom, you're is... such a, I just want to tell you, I think you're such an amazing woman. The fact that you <laughs> are an inventor, you're also a painter, you're also a screenwriter and, and you, you know, you're working on a screenplay and you're doing all these things and you're retired mm -hmm. and I'm not going to say your age, but they can kind of guess it since you said 1940s or yeah, something like that. That would be 76, right? How old are you? Well, they say I'm 76. It's <laughs> amazing, mom. <laughs> so you're 76, you're retired, and you're doing all these, you still have all this drive. How do you keep drive and ambition at that age? Oh, I heard that. It doesn't mean I never get sad or worried. It, it means... I have a basic faith in life. I have a basic need to drive for happiness and um, a basic need to, to learn. I mean, I just, it's always been there that I need to learn. And the learning I'm talking about is um, for myself, for my inner growth. And um, how do you stay strong? I pray. But I don't just pray, I trust and I, and I increase my trust in the Holy Spirit and the universe. I keep increasing it because every time I see somebody else get a prayer answered, I say they kicked it up a notch. And so that's what I do with my faith, my belief in, in this higher power, this, my faith in this um, created being in this inner being, whatever you want to call it. I have faith in that. And I, I, I just work toward increasing it. How do you do that? How do you work towards increasing? How do you maintain it's, that? It's, a conscious, it's conscious, like everything else I told you about a person who has been abused, how will they get better? It's a conscious interest. If I'm not interested or that, that power doesn't put that thing in my head or my mind, um, I may not get to that in this lifetime, but as it stands right now, I can only talk about me that I am very interested in my connection to that higher power because there is the creation. There is all things happen right there. You had it in that way, in that place, in that um, ether, so to speak. It's that's where everything happens. You raised me with an open mind when it comes to religion. Why? In a lot of ways, my mother did that to me. She told um, my younger sister and she told me that 
um, you have to go somewhere. She, she worked on Sunday. She would tell us, it's Sunday. You have to go somewhere. You have to go to church somewhere. And then sometimes she would say, oh, you don't have to go. And so her attitude was so loving and so like, almost as if she was saying, she never actually said this, I don't think. I know you'll find God because you can't miss it. There's no way you'll miss it. And so um, until she became a Jehovah's Witness, even then she was more relaxed than my sister who became a Jehovah's Witness. My mother was very relaxed about it. But um, her motherly side was so warm and friendly about religion. And, and I, I really was in touch with my higher power when I was about six years old. I was looking up at the sky and I remember saying to myself, what is what? And then I go and say, what? I just kept asking questions and I was asking me, but I was asking it, meaning mm -hmm. the higher power. And that stayed with me, that experience. It, it was something more felt than experienced. You just mentioned looking up at the sky and I remember you would um, point, we would lay it lay down and look up at the clouds and we'd be like, oh, that looks like a rabbit or that looks like a, you used to always like point out shapes in the clouds to me. Yeah, anyway, that just yeah. came to mind. You were so sweet mm -hmm. and always very attentive and very um, interested in me and very interested in my mind and just mm -hmm. very caring mm -hmm. and nurturing. And I really appreciate that mama. But um, so you, you, you have had your own relationship with this higher power, as you call it. Mm -hmm. But I want a better one. I want an even stronger one than I have right now. Why don't you say God? Why do you say higher power? Um, I, I think God has always felt like a man or like a, a boss somewhere. And that's what was used in religion in the churches that I've gone to. And I've gone to many churches. I've even gone to the Muslims. I've gone to um, when Elijah was living, I went to one of his um, orientations or whatever it was called. And um, I've been to Catholic religions. I never felt that God was infinite. I always felt like God was what they say in the Bible, which is this person and this boss that could only do so much for you. <laughs> mm. I only got so much money that I can let you have. I only got so much time you can have. And, mm. you know, don't ask me, ask somebody else. I don't have time for that. That's the kind of, when I hear God, it just feels so limiting. So I've learned to say Holy Spirit. I've learned to say um, inner being, um, higher power, uh, holy one, infinite power, just anything that is not man-like or woman-like. Do you ever get mad at it? Frustrated, but not mad because I know it's not it, it's me. It's not the power that's not working, it's me not applying to the powers, me trying to make it work. So me how do you do not letting go? So how do you deal with anger just in general? You take it as you like if something it going feels on like me, it all anger always feels like me because it's coming through my, uh, my mind. Do you get angry anymore? I do. Yeah. Okay. I so sure how do you do. deal with that? It just seems to pass in some cases, some of it I know is not something to worry about right now so anger does have a certain amount of worry with it 
So I like when I hear about racial things, uh, uh, things that done to black people, I find myself getting very angry, but I've gotten angry at it so many times in my lifetime. I finally gotten where I could say, well, I don't feel like letting that worry me right now. And um, it will pass, but it's not over. Because some, some people feel like anger is valid. And, and I, I think anger is a valid emotion. I'm not doing Oh, yeah. at all. But I, it's like, I need anger in order to take action, right? I mm -hmm. need to be pissed mm -hmm. off so that there can be change. Mm -hmm. Do you agree with that? I, I used to, and I used to, when I would be angry, I'd take action in anger, which meant I would say whatever came to defend because I was a mother and a father and I was protecting me and my children. But I, I'm really working toward letting my higher power redirect um, what I thought should happen. So do at, you least think, in my, at least in my mind, tell me something different about the situation. So do you think there's a place for anger in God? Yeah, I don't think it's a bad thing. I think if you do something with it, like hurt someone or curse somebody out, I think those things are wrong. Um, like if I tell, if I have a person on the phone, like from a phone company, I'll give it that's as an example. And I start fussing at the person uh, I'm talking to, the representative of the phone company, and I start fussing at them. Before the phone call is over, I, I hope that I will apologize to that person and say that I'm so sorry that I talked to you that way. You, I really mm -hmm. uh, did not intend to, to say anything to hurt you. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. I was really upset when I first got on the phone or something. And then sometimes I've gotten where the amends uh, uh, telling somebody I'm sorry or that uh, trying to talk it through with them. I, I just don't do it. My ego is too big. It just will not let me say I'm sorry. I found that that place of not saying I'm sorry is so small, mm -hmm. but it has such a wide space of relief. It does. It's huge. Yeah. But a small window to climb through, right? You got to do it fast, especially with strangers. Yep. Okay. So the name of my my podcast is Kim's Chi, Feeding Life Energy. What do you think about chi? <laughs> like the idea of chi and energy. Do you think it conflicts with Christianity or conflicts um, with the ideas of biblical principles? I think you um, asked me this, not this particular question, but a question about religion or God or, or Christianity, and I didn't address it. I think we started talking about something else. But if I say this, it will cover Chi. Chi for me, um, as a, a podcast listener, it just take me a minute to get used to the word, to understand the definition. When I go deeper and I look at religion, I have not been um, a religious follower for many years. I, I'd go so far as to say my whole life. I have to say this. I love me some Jesus Christ. Is I believe it's the Christ within that does the work. And that's what Jesus was trying to tell us. It is not I, but the Father within who does the work is what it's saying. And I've never been a Bible thumper. So, But you I sure believe... can't spit some um, verses out though, Mama. I know I can. My grandmother <laughs> raised me with the Bible, throwing it in my face all the time. But the, the, some of them, you could call them cliches or whatever you want to call them. But some of them are very practical, very easy to follow, you know? 
But um, what do you think about energy? Chi being energy. Do you believe in energy or I do you believe I, in it like being Yes, I believe that's I believe that like, is the is, higher power. I do think yeah. energy is the higher power. Right. This is another way of saying it. Universe, energy, power, whatever is is not the common thinking. Okay. So what is the mind and thought to you? Hmm. I think there's um, free thought flowing around for everybody. And I think that's how we all know the same thing at the same time sometimes and don't know we know it. Like, um, I'm trying to think of an example. I can't think of an example right now without spending a lot of time trying to remember. Like particles in the air or like bird, or like flies in the sky that are just floating around and you can grab one at any time? Yeah, exactly. That's what thoughts are like. Those are called race, race thoughts. Um, but then the brain in itself has thoughts coming through it. I don't think thoughts are created right there. I think the thoughts are coming through it. Just simply put, I, I, I just think if I'm having thoughts that don't feel good, I need to find a way to just switch the conversation. Just but like how? If you have an obsessive thought, how do you do that? That's a hard one. Sometimes you have to get a lot of help for that. I don't really know the answer for an obsession or, or getting a song out of my head. Uh, I don't know those cures, but I, I do believe you can pray and they can go or you can be directed someplace to get help. There's so many places to get help for obsessions like gambling or drinking or uh, being lovesick, you know, like uh, sex and love or whatever. There's so many places to get help for obsessions of any kind. But do you think they're rooted in the mind or, or is it physiological? I think it's a little bit of both. If they stay, if, you know, if I go too deep on this, then it changes my belief in possibilities. For example, okay, so suppose I, I had been working on an exam, uh, an obsession about, um, I'm telling you about an obsession about gambling. And a scientist says, well, gambling, once a person gambles, da, 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 da. Uh, example might be, oh, they'll always have it in their heart to gamble. And then 10 years or three years from now, they come back and say, well, we said that, but that's not exactly true. We found that the, right. that uh, prayer will make it da, 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 da. So I'm like this. I could tell you anything that I think is true but what's really true is the power of prayer. And prayer is not always, oh God, hi, you know, our Father. It's not always that. It can easily be just me talking to it, to that power, to that energy, just talking to it and saying things to it that I know to say. Okay, but so, so okay, so let me ask you this. So you can talk to, you can pray and, you know, over, so basically you're saying there's nothing that the mind can't overcome. That's what I'm hearing. There's nothing the I mind can't. If you, if you believe in the main power, which is a creator of all things, if I believe in that, it trumps everything. Okay, but then there's the ego. Mm -hmm. But the fact that I would want to pray is saying my ego is at rest. It's sitting in, sitting in the corner somewhere. How do you define the ego? Hmm. Or how, let me ask you this. How does it manifest? How do you see it manifest in yourself and others? 
it pops up like some kind of animal or some kind of um, monster. It can be real subtle and slow and sly. It's like it's a human almost or like a second nature to me. Is it all bad though? No, in fact, ego has so many translations. Like for example, in one way, ego can keep you from being in, in, in a heavenly state of mind because you're sitting around criticizing everybody. But if you say, oh, uh-oh, help me with this Holy Spirit and um, remove this off of me. And you're not doing this thing anymore. Now you get to be like um, sweet. Everything is lovely. Now that's ego that keeps you from being happy. Maybe make you curse somebody out. You're not thinking about what you're going to say could hurt them. You're not thinking about, no, uh-uh, nobody's running over me anymore. Uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. No, this, 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 this. I got to do this. That's ego. But when you give in, give in only means you decide it's not worth it. I, I don't even want to be bothered with that anymore. It just suddenly sweetness comes, you know, and, and the mind is not stressed out. And I'm not trying to have my way or make things go my way. And then suddenly they go my way because I gave in to that ego-centered uh, thinking. Okay, but so, but the ego strives off of, or I won't say strives off of, it um, forms off of like past thought, mm -hmm. um, hurt feeling, mm -hmm. resentful emotion. You have to grow up. You have to just, uh, yeah, I just uh, have to grow envy, up. All the things we've talked about, mm -hmm. um, childhood trauma, abuse like it, it drives off so it's very it's 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 very factual it's based off of good evidence yeah and it's a protection how can you let that go and say you know we're talking about that small gap of space to to apologize to somebody or that small gap of space to forgive somebody whatever how do you get that small gap of space to let go of the ego so that you can tap into God? I think after I make enough mistakes with uh, following my ego, then I know my ego has got me in trouble so many times. That'd be small stuff to somebody. But when I feel unhappy, I feel uh, guilty for, for insulting someone. I know that's my ego. And even if it's not my ego, it's still not right. Do you think the ego is the will? I think, yeah, it's the thing that, yeah, it's our will in operation having okay. its own way. But okay, I was now, gonna say there's another ego that is what you might call a healthy ego, but um, maybe everybody's not aware how it goes, but say if, if you're in a hospital, for example, they're gonna check for your ego strength, it's called. Ego strength can be simple things like, does she still want to live? Does that person still, you know, are they talking like they wanna hurt themselves? Um, do they feel, they're going to uh, get better. Do they want help? These are some of the things they check. Do you have, um, uh, there's a whole checklist uh, and I have okay. one of those checklists. Okay, so that's a healthy ego, right? Uh -huh. So a healthy ego or an unhealthy ego is the use of the will. Is, is that what you're saying? The negative use of the will, yes. Or uh -huh. the healthy use of the will if it's a healthy ego. Right. Yes, exactly. OK, so then if the ego is there and it's the will, how do you know the difference between the will and God or the will and intuition? 
everything I think is consciousness. Once you know, once I know, I can't say for everybody, but once I know that I want, I like the life that that power would give me if I would turn to it for every single thing, I, I, I could walk on water, so to speak, you know? So mm -hmm. why wouldn't I want to try to figure that out or try to pray about that rather than figure out what part of me is the ego? The minute I turn to God, there's no ego. Okay, point blank period. Okay, so you, you are a seeker. I'm closing, I'm wrapping up. I have a few more questions, <laughs> but you're a seeker. You know, you studied all different types of um, what they call new thought teachers, but it's not just new thought. It's just- um, Yes, that's true too. Yeah, or Christian-based, but non-Christian-based. Mm -hmm. um, just any kind of, any teach. Are they all saying the same thing? And if so, what do you think they're saying? Even using, talking about Jesus, talking about Abraham, I mean, go Old Testament, New Testament, you know, talk about, um, and when I say Abraham, I'm talking about Abraham in the Old Testament, not Abraham Hicks, but also Abraham Hicks, right. Lester Levinson, uh, was the guy, Joe Dispenza, um, all these people, new and old, Ernest Holmes, uh, uh, Neville Goddard, uh, Reverend Ike, all these people that are teachers, and some would say Jesus is the greatest teacher. Let's talk about Martin Luther King, Gandhi. Um, what are they all saying? What do you think that the, if you could put everybody together, what are they all saying? I think they're all saying, we're not by ourselves. We're not alone. And there is a power which is called our creator who made all of us and what are the answers? Here are some answers and those answers are very similar and they lean toward that power in whatever ways they, they teach it. For example, if you're a Christian, you go to Christian church and the person's teaching that is hoping they're teaching you something you can live by. Do you have something you can live by that is good for you? Now that would be more so the religion. I think they're all saying that there's something good for you that will work for you, that cares about you, that loves you. And what is that? What is that? That power that made- What made, is that power uh, seeking to do? What does that power want to do? That power wants to have life through me. That's the one thing I do know. That, that, that power has decided to have life through me. That's why I have it. And it wants me to express life and to have fun, to have joy. The greatest gift is joy. To find joy, not happiness. Happiness is a new car or something. But joy is something I can feel right in this moment, anytime I want. It's a free gift. And, and because we don't have it enough, we don't think it's important to have joy. Okay, you said the greatest gift or the greatest is joy what did you say the greatest the greatest gift is joy I mean, the greatest love? is joy 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 feels like love it's i don't see mm. a lot of difference between the two mm. but joy mm. is like the happiness of love if you want to say it like that mm. okay joy is just sweet mm -hmm. okay so this is another question i had um you know you talk about your your parents how they raised you and you know 
and then there's how you raised me, you know, I don't have any regrets about how you raised me. You know, I, I would, it would have been nice to have my father there, but he was dealing with his adversities. Um, but I think you did a phenomenal job raising me and, and uh, I'm sure Karen would have wanted her dad to be there. Um, but you know, circumstances didn't allow for that either, but you've done a phenomenal job raising me and I have no regrets. Do you have regrets about how you were raised one and how do you overcome that feeling of you were not raised right or you, they didn't do it right? I did go through that, um, wishing things were different. And finally, I think a big clump of forgiveness happened for me. If, if I don't find a way to forgive other people that I really don't know their whole story because I only know what I know and I only know what I experienced, unless I find a way to forgive all things, I'm going to be miserable. And so I think a lot of it is just finally being sick and tired of being sick and tired of mm. thinking the same old dirty thoughts mm. that don't make me feel better. Mm. Just because I know they did this, this and this or didn't do this, this and this, like mm -hmm. I was neglected. To me, that was freedom. When I found out, I real not found out like someone told me, but when I realized that if I was over there and I was over there and I was only one and, and I've learned about um, child development, then I must have been, and that's why I was so insecure so long as an adult, is I missed certain stages. Well, that's knowledge, but it also matched up with my emotions and made me feel better. Mm. And so then I was able to let it go and letting go, uh, letting go is similar to forgiveness. It's the same thing if I think about it, because I'm not having hard, hard feelings anymore about it. The way I feel is it matters to me how I feel. I don't want to walk around miserable and angry and can't let something pass. You know, if I drop some milk on the floor, You'll be upset about this, upset about that. You know, I spill the milk, I'm mad. Or you spill the milk, I'm mad. And I, I don't want to be crying over spilled milk, you know? <laughs> Wait, say it again, say it again. I ain't crying over spilled milk. <laughs> okay, last question. Karen was on here and she was talking about depression and she was talking about the battle she's experiencing. And I know that you are with her a lot and you're dealing with that with her. And you are, you know, so patient, so kind, so loving. But I also know it's challenging. We both are are involved with Karen. And um, and we talk about her. She's so full of wisdom and so full of life. You know, it's, it's amazing to see that she's still dealing with the things she's experiencing. But how are you handling it? And what are your hopes for your daughter, Karen? Hmm. The, um, talk about challenges in life. That's one. And um, first of all, realizing that um, I'm one among many. I'm not the only person in the world who has some kind of thing going on that I don't necessarily like or um, that is easy. But the biggest thing I think about is 
how does she feel? Just, and I have and I have lost my patience with her. I'm not going to say I haven't lost my patience, but I'm so sorry after I've lost lost my patience. And um, but I, I I'm not hard on myself about it anymore because I say out of all the things I do, on scale of one to hundred, this is like one thing. Uh uh, I'm not holding that against me, and and I make amends or, you know, I ask for forgiveness if I say something short like a little loss of my patience. Then I, that's the only thing I think I really do, that is um, out of character maybe or a reaction to things I don't like. But um, it's made us both stronger. We already were close. It's not something we needed to make us close for being, uh, having a stroke happen. It's not something we needed, but who's to say why it happened? Uh, the universe knows why it happened. And um, I'm just rolling with it and I can't wait for the cure. I expect a cure. I expect absolute joy. I expect clapping my hands and hallelujah. She had some joy the other day. That was she really did. nice. She had freedom the other day. I just cried. I was so happy for her. Oh, I so know you cried, mama. Uh -huh. and there you go. I'm, I'm, I'm me. I'm over here being me and you over there being you. <laughs> <laughs> um, you said you cried and what? You were saying something else. She was telling me the details and it was still happening. I was, that's what was amazing to me is it was still wow. happening. It wasn't just a brief two It wasn't no thing. two second of relief. It was like all day relief. So she could have that thing. She could have it all the time. Wow. And so that kicked my belief up a little more. And it let me know that, that I, where I was lacking in my belief, like I was thinking, I told her this, I see I'm crying too, because I realized I didn't think the power could, could do anything about this one. It's like I was walking around saying, well, I know you can't fix this one. <laughs> but at the same time, you asking God to fix it. You said, there God, you go. please fix it. Please there fix it. Go. And then you said, there I you don't go. think you can fix it. I don't there think this is too big for you to fix. That's in the back. That's in the back of the yeah. mind. I realized I was thinking that. So if I, if I was thinking that, all I had to do is unthink it. Okay, but how do you how do you unthink that? Because that's a major thinking thing. Uh huh. Just just keep saying it. Oh, it does work. That power does care. That power is fixing this. I thought it wasn't. It wasn't paying attention over here, but it is. It pays attention to every single detail of this universe. Because guess what? It made it. <laughs> I I'm do a painting, and you come over, and you're gonna show me something on my painting. I made the painting. I know what's on the painting. So the higher power knows everything. And the higher power can fix everything. There's nothing. There's no place where it is not. There's no place where this energy is not. And this energy is alive and moving and kicking. It is super intelligent. And it is an action-oriented power. It is not a dormant check me if you can or catch me if you can type of thing. It is always available. It's never not available. It's not running from me. I don't have to have a formula. So I increase my, I increase my belief by being aware, being aware that something is going on with my belief. And then I said, because one, one thing I heard, uh, I think Jesus said, believe. 
And so that sounds like a command, believe. So, okay, believe. I do, okay. Believe more deeply, okay. I could do that. I could do that. Okay, your anger's in the way of your receiving your gifts. Okay, I could, I could work on that. I'm aware of that. Your bad attitude's in the way of your receiving. Okay, I could work on that. I, I have to admit it first that, yeah, maybe that's true. Maybe I have a bad attitude about the universe, about my place in life. Okay. And I'm going to do it fast because I know we're not all here forever. I want to do it fast so I can, I can do it now. I want to do everything now. And I want to do it in the future. Not, I don't want my life in the future. I want my life right now. I want your life, my experience with you, whoever you are, with you now. I don't want it like, you know, I'll be planning over there somewhere, but it's now right here. Thank you, Mama. It was a pleasure having you on. <laughs> You're so amazing. I thank you for coming on to Kim's Chi Feeding Life Energy. And I just want to let you know how much I love you. And I appreciate you. I know I said that, but I want to really tell you that, that you are an angel to me. And um, any wrong I've ever done to you, I apologize to the world, to you. And I know I've made amends to you, but I just want to let you know that I deeply love you. And I didn't know how to love and I didn't know how to love myself. You taught me how to love myself and you taught me how to love and um, you're the most forgiving and patient and kind person I know. And I'm aiming to be more like you. I'm already like you because I got your blood, but I'm aiming to be more like you. And, um, and also I love how, how fearless you are. And I'm aiming to um, be like that as well. Okay. Thank you so much. I love you. I love you too. Have a great, great uh, rest of your day. <laughs> okay. Bye. You too. Bye-bye. <laughs> I wish you well with your podcast. Thank you. I Ma. know you do very well. You're a superstar. Thanks, Mama. Bye-bye. Uh -huh. Bye. Thanks for tuning in and eating some spiritual food with me today. Once again, this is Kim's Chi, Feeding Life Energy, a podcast for the nourishment of the hungry soul. All steps for man, one giant leap for mankind.